Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for saving us, that though we were far off, you brought us near through the blood of your own son, Jesus. Father, thank you. What thanks can we render to you for this great gift? Lord, as we come again to study your word, we are mindful that we find so many warnings against false teaching and false doctrine. Father, I pray that as a result of visiting another text like this again, that you would remind us of our need for constant vigilance and that you would protect us from the evil one and from waywardness in our teaching and in our belief and the things that we say that are true. Lord, help us. Have mercy on us. And I pray that you conform each and every one of us to the image of your own dear son and that we would think our thoughts after yours. So, Lord, this is something we cannot sustain within ourselves, but we know that it is something that you can sustain through the power of your spirit. So we pray that you would open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to be talking about how to deal with false teachers this morning. And, and I didn't know uh, when I began preparing this message that I would be having a conversation with a real live false teacher before the week was out, but I did. Yesterday, I was on a radio program that's out of Chicago on the Moody Radio Network, and I and two other guests faced off in a debate about church discipline and homosexuality. And the three of us all serve as pastors in our churches, but we're the three of us all in kind of very different places on this question, which is why it was a debate. One of the men agreed with Scripture that uh, homosexual immorality is a sin, but he said that his church would never excommunicate an unrepentant person who was living in that kind of immorality. In fact, he said that his church would never excommunicate any member for any reason at all. Their church might hold a biblical view of sexual morality, but it's not anything that they would enforce through, their, through, their, uh, the, through the church's discipline. One caller even called in and asked him, he said, well, what if you had a, a church member who was involved in human trafficking? Would you discipline that person? Would they be allowed to still be a member of your church? He said, yeah, they would still be allowed to be a member of our church. Well, I didn't say this out loud, but I was thinking, that's crazy, <laughs> you know. The other pastor in the debate said that he was a part of a third-way church. You ever heard of this? A third-way church. And uh, at the, his church, they treat the issue of homosexuality as an issue that Christians can agree to disagree about. You say potato, I say patata. You know, what's the difference? He said that some of the members in his church hold to a traditional view, but that other members in his church hold to um, say that the Bible allows for these kinds of relationships. And it's not an issue that they divide over within their church. 
He also said in the conversation that he himself was a celibate gay Christian, which I thought meant that he said he held to a biblical view himself, um, and he was you know trying to live faithfully even though other people disagreed with him in his church. But that's not what it was at all. He said no. I think these. He, he was just remaining celibate so he could be pastor of the church. And that he thinks that those kinds of relationships are a great gift for, for some people. In any case, he said his church is a third-way church because members don't have to have a view on sexuality one way or the other. Their church is neither affirming nor non-affirming. It allows for both. That's the third way. It's simply not a first-order issue. And it's harmful, he said, to treat people as if it affects their salvation tell people that it would have an eternal consequence, whether or not they lived in sexual immorality. And so uh, he had his, his piece, and then the moderator threw it back to me to see how I would respond to that. She asked me, do you think it's a first-order issue? And I said, well, you know, 1 Corinthians 6 says that um, those who live in this kind of immorality don't inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, it affects whether or not... Uh, a first order issue. Yes, it affects things that are central to, to our faith. And I said, if you want to pursue sexual immorality, you can't pursue Jesus. You can follow Jesus or not. There's not a third way here in between. You can go online if you want to listen to the debate. I'm not going to rehearse the, the, the whole thing. But if you do listen to it, what you'll immediately notice is that neither one of the guys that I'm talking to sounds like a bad person. Neither one of them. In fact, they both sound like very thoughtful, reasonable, concerned pastors who are trying to love and to minister to the people that are in their, their church. Even the pastor of that third way church comes across like he's, he's trying to apply the Bible to his particular situation, to his understanding of sexuality. He sounds reasonable, nice, and biblical in a certain sense, at least at first blush. But here's the thing. False teachers don't ever come to us with horns and a pointy tail. Uh, they're, they're not always going to look or sound the part that we think that they might sound like. Some of them are going to look and sound reasonable and even at first blush, biblical. And it's for that reason that they're going to be able to capture the attention of unsuspecting sheep. But here's the thing. No matter how nice or reasonable they may sound, if they are undermining the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints, they are false teachers. False teachers are marked by their teaching, not by their manner of presentation. If they are teaching things that lead people away from Jesus... And not to Jesus, they are false teachers. I think that that's what I was facing yesterday as I was speaking to these men on the other end of the, the phone line. And it's precisely what the church of the Lord Jesus has always faced since the beginning of Christianity. It's the kind of thing that we are going to have to face as a church. And it's certainly the kind of thing that Paul is facing down in Titus chapter 1. In verses 10 through 16. I want you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 in verses 10 through 16. This entire paragraph is about confronting false teachers. And notice that verse 10 begins this way. He says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, 
Now that little connective word, for, forces us to look back at the verse we studied last time I preached on this, at verse 9. And in verse 9, it's all about the faithful pastor's responsibility to hold firm the trustworthy word, the trustworthy word as taught, to give instruction in sound doctrine, and to rebuke those who contradict God's word. Why are they supposed to do that? Well, verse 10 tells you why. Because there's already many within the church there at Crete who are contradicting God's word. And they're false teachers. And so Paul is telling Pastor Titus how he's supposed to deal with these false teachers. And he's telling us the same thing about how we're supposed to deal with false teaching within the church. And I'm going to highlight three things in this text that Paul teaches us about dealing with false teachers. Here's the three things. He's going to say you have to silence false teachers. He says you have to rebuke false teachers. And then he's going to talk about identifying false teachers. So silencing false teachers, rebuking false teachers, and identifying false teachers. Look at verses 10 and 11. This is silencing false teachers. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, it's interesting that Paul says there are many of these false teachers already running around at the church in Crete. This is a brand new church. Christianity itself at this point was still pretty new in the world, and yet it didn't take very long for false teachers to make their presence known in the church. Truth be told, it really shouldn't be that surprising because Jesus warned his disciples that it would be this way, didn't he? Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 16, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus said, this is going to happen among you as my disciples. So it shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, it shouldn't have been a surprise to them, nor should it be surprising to us when false teachers um, find their way in and around us. It just simply means that we have to be vigilant all the time because there's nothing more that the devil wants to do than to destroy this church and our witness in this community by false teaching, which is exactly what can happen if we are not vigilant about these things. So we have to be ready at all times. But notice what Paul says these false teachers are like. He says they are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Now, there's a link here with that term insubordinate to what Paul said in verse 6. What did Paul say about the elders in verse 6? He said one of their characteristics of, of a faithful pastor is he can't be insubordinate. And what you see in this description of the false teachers, it's kind of like the mirror image of, or it's the mirror opposite actually, of the, uh, of the pastor's. The pastors have to be a certain way because there's all these people who are standing in opposition to these principles who are in the church. Pastors can't be insubordinate because you got all you got some insubordinate people who've, who've infiltrated the church. But that term insubordinate means it's, it's a person who refuses to submit to authority. They have an allergy 
to someone else telling them something to do. And in this case, it's God telling them something to do in, in his work. And so they're insubordinate to God. And you know they're insubordinate to his authority because they don't submit to God's word. In fact, they distort God's word and they contradict God's word. But he also says these guys are empty talkers, which means their talk is, is um, it doesn't have any value to it. There's no nourishment there for God's people. It's just sort of vanity whenever they open their mouths to speak. It's to no good purpose. So these teachers are disobedient themselves, and their teaching is leading others into that same disobedient. It's, this, it's the kind of talk that 2 Timothy 2.16 talks about. In fact, there's a related word there. Um, and it says in 2 Timothy 2.16 that this leads people into more and more ungodliness. That's what this vain talk does. But he also says that they're deceivers, which means they mislead people. And this is the key thing. The, the, the really dangerous thing about false teachers is they give people the impression that they're following Jesus when they're actually not following Jesus. They give people the impression that there's a third way when there's really not a third way. They make them think that they're a Christian when they're really pursuing a lifestyle that is in the antithesis of being a Christian. So they're misleading and deceiving people and to think they're following Christ, but they're not really following Christ. They're leading people away from Jesus. And they won't, and for some of them, sadly, they don't figure it out until they get to the judgment. You see why these false teachers are so dangerous and why there has to be a vigilance within the church. They're insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. And he says here, especially those of the circumcision party. That word especially means, I've told you before, we've seen this word several times in the pastorals, but it means namely. So all these insubordinate, lying, empty talkers are namely these ones from the, the circumcision party, which means these false teachers are basically, uh, they're Jewish, okay? Um, and, and so... The question is, who are these guys and what in the world are they teaching? Um, one commentator says this. He says, Paul says several things about these false teachers, but he gives no systematic description of them, which is true. But he does give us some clues about them. His reference to them as those of the circumcision makes it's clearly a reference to their being Jewish. He says in verse 14 that they pay attention to Jewish myths. Um, both of those details together help us to identify them. He also says that there are those who turn away from the truth. So that sounds like they were at least at one point identified as Christian, right? So it would sound like they're, it's kind of a Jewish Christian false teaching emerging within the church, whatever it is. So these false teachers are or have been Christians and that, and that they might be described as Jewish Christians. That's what it seems like, or at least predominantly so. We don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we can say this. They were concerned with Jewish myths, and elsewhere we know that they were concerned with genealogies, which it looks like they were sort of making speculations about some of the genealogical lists in the Old Testament, making up stories and myths about the names therein, and introducing some false teachings based on that. You say, well, what exactly was it? We don't really know. We just can see the, sort of the broad outlines of it. But what we do know is that what they were teaching was opposed to apostolic teaching, and it turns people away from
from the truth. And we also know that they were motivated by money. In fact, he says it in so many words. He says in verse 11, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, gain what they ought not to teach. So what does Paul say? First thing you have to, how to deal with false teachers. What's the first thing you got to do? He says they must be silenced. Why? Because their teaching isn't just an argument about theological minutia. Their teaching is destroying whole families. That's what it means that they're upsetting whole families. How are they destroying whole families? It's hard to know without knowing the exact nature of the teaching. But verse 14 says that these are commands of people who turn away from the truth. The only commands that we know about in the pastorals um, from the false teachers are the ones that we saw when we studied 1 Timothy 4 in verses 1 through 3. And you'll remember that there were false teachers who were forbidding people from marriage and from eating certain foods. Do you remember that? They're forbidding people from marriage and eating certain foods. So some sort of a Jewish false teaching forbidding marriage and eating certain foods. Perhaps their prohibition on marriage led to ending existing marriages. It's hard to know. Whatever it was, it was destroying families. And this destruction was a direct result of the false teacher's teaching. The important thing to note here is that this false teaching wasn't just an esoteric theological debate. It had very practical um, results in the lives of the people who were hearing the teaching. It was destroying families. And so false teaching harms God's people. You've got to remember this because a lot of people are going to tell you when you are holding fast to the truth of the gospel in a, in a way that's countercultural or in a way that's confrontational to people, they're going to tell you that your standing for the truth harms people. This text says that false teaching is what harms people. It's what destroys families. We are holding to the truth because we love people. That's what we're doing. It's neither wise nor loving to let false teaching run unopposed in the church. If you love God's people, you are going to try and spare them from what hurts them. And false teaching can destroy them spiritually. So Paul says that false teachers must be silenced. But, but that doesn't mean that, that, that we're supposed to like stuff a gag in their mouth so that they can never talk again. That's not what he means by they have to be silenced. It doesn't mean that we follow them around everywhere they go and make sure they never talk again. So that's not what he means by silenced. Silenced means that we're not supposed to give them a voice or an influence within the church. It means that we don't give them a platform of any size for their error within the church. If you do give them a platform for their error, either in a Sunday school class or a prayer group or even especially in this pulpit, if you give a platform for the error, you risk the sheep being led into that same soul-destroying error. And it harms them. And what you don't silence in that sense, you end up endorsing. Or at least the impression that you give is that you're endorsing it. 
So you can't give a platform to error or someone who is a known teacher of error that kills people's souls. I've been very appreciative over the years of the ministry of um, a certain conference, the Passion Conference. It's an, um, it's an enormous conference of evangelical college students that meets every year just after Christmas. And students come together, they hear dynamic preaching and this really excellent uh, worship music. And at this point, the thing has grown to tens of thousands of college students that meet every year just after Christmas. And it's really an impressive conference. In fact, they just had their uh, annual meeting just last week in Atlanta. Um, that, that conference in my own life played a, a shaping role in my formative uh, seminary years. It connected me to the ministry of certain uh, men who've, been, who've had certain in, uh, uh, an enormous influence over my life and ministry. So I have a real soft spot in my heart for the, for the Passion Conference, which is why I watched with some grief last week to see some things slipping a little bit. There was, I was grieved to see that this conference put on the platform a very famous singer as one of their worship leaders, and this particular singer is very well known for being in favor of um, immoral sexual immorality, homosexual immorality. It's been known for years in public. And this particular singer has been linked to a church in Nashville that's supportive of that kind of immorality. The beliefs of this person have been very public and broadcast far and wide for many years. And yet there she was on the platform in front of tens of thousands of evangelical college students. This is exactly what we're talking about here. Think about what this means to put, to give a platform to a person who holds to that kind of error. Even if the person doesn't mention the issue from the platform, what does it communicate to all those college students? It tells them that you can be a vocal proponent of that kind of immorality and be a faithful follower of Jesus. It communicates a third way. Even if you don't ever say it in so many words. I don't know how it says anything less than that. And that's gravely dangerous for college students, many of whom are facing withering satanic attacks at their secular universities because of what their faith teaches them about that very issue. What you don't silence, your people will interpret as that which you endorse. If you give a platform to error, you normalize the error. And you say that it can coexist with faithful Christian commitment. And so that's why Paul says that false teachers must be silenced. You don't stuff a gag in their mouth. You just don't give a platform to the error. That's why we must never give voice to error by lending any platform that we have to the kind of soul-destroying error that Paul is, is discussing here. We give error no place at all to take root and to germinate. We silence it. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, that doesn't mean that struggling sheep have no forum for asking tough questions or for wrestling through vexing theological or moral questions. I know that some of you are going to wrestle with those things. And they're going to be fundamental questions that you have. And there's a place for that and for you to have discussions with us with that. 
But that doesn't mean that we're going to display uncertainty about the truth as our message in this church. We will strengthen the hands of the weak, but we will not weaken the hands of the strong by giving a platform to those in open opposition to the truth. You hear what I'm saying here? If you've got questions and you're struggling, we want to come to you and struggle with you, but we're not going to put that struggle out as the conviction and proclamation of this church. So Paul says you have to silence the false teachers. Second thing, he says you have to rebuke the false teachers. Look at verse 12. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul is a man who likes to win friends and influence people. <laughs> um, Paul is writing to the people of Crete. They are Cretans, right? And he's writing to, to Titus. And Cretans in the ancient world, when Paul was writing this, had a, a, a bad reputation. Uh, they had a reputation for being really bad people and immoral people. And so you're probably, it's probably not going to do to just say that outright. And so what Paul does is he quotes one of their very own countrymen, this poet named Epimenides. He doesn't name Epimenides, but that's who he's quoting here. And this guy lived uh, several uh, some about six centuries before this, but he was a well-known person from Crete, who was a pagan. He's not a, obviously not a Christian, not a Jew, but he was just a, a well-known poet from from Crete. And he says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's what he says. One of your own people say this about Cretans. And so what Paul is doing is he's saying that the Cretan false teachers are behaving like stereotypical Cretans. Cretans don't tell the truth according to this stereotype. They behave like evil beasts, which means they're vicious and unreasoning. He says they're lazy gluttons, which means that they live for their appetites. So they're lying and they kind of live for themselves and they're, in, they, they're, they're not nice to other people. And so the stereotype is rotten and Paul says it fits the false teachers. And look what he says in verse 13. He says, this testimony is true, which means in the case of these false teachers, they're faithfully living out what it means to live, to be a, a Cretan. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That means that these false teachers are living up to the Cretan stereotype and, and, and probably, think about this, if these false teachers were Jewish Christians and they thought they were being really scrupulous, scrupulous Jewish believers, it was probably really galling to hear somebody tell them that they're behaving like pagan Gentiles, like Cretans. But Paul's saying, you're not, be, you're not behaving with Jewish integrity, but with pagan insubordination. So Paul says to Titus, you rebuke them sharply which means you confront them with their wrongdoing so that you can convince them of their wrongdoing. Because in their own mind, they may be acting in good conscience. They may be thinking that what they're saying is right and true. In fact, the potency of false teachers oftentimes is in the fact that they actually believe what they're teaching. So you've got to confront them so that you can convince them that what they're teaching is in error. And he says, do so sharply which means severely and rigorously, 
which means the level of their opposition to the truth and their um, persistence in opposition to the truth is going to determine how sharply and severely you, you have to confront them. Why? What's the point of the confrontation? Paul says the goal is, and look at this, so that they may be sound in the faith. Now, this is a really important thing for us to hear because this means that Paul was holding out hope that these false teachers might be won back over to the truth. This is not the first time that Paul's talked with that kind of hopefulness about false teachers. Remember 2 Timothy chapter 2? Verses 24 and 26, where Paul says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That means correcting the false teachers with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What that means is Paul had a hopefulness that People can be corrected. Sometimes people teaching really wrong things can be confronted and repent of their falseness and can be restored under the fellowship and maybe into usefulness again in the ministry. I think that this ought to be our hope as well. If we're just confronting false teachers just because we like to fight or because we're cantankerous or because we like to be proven right, that's not a good reason for confrontation. Our hope and prayer in the confrontation is that they might turn from their error and rejoin the people of God in following the word of God and not doing what it says in verse 14, devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We don't want them to continue in the the error. We want them to come out of it. And he says that what they're in now are Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. That means a man-made kind of False religion. 1 Timothy 1.4 says those myths are linked to endless genealogies. And so we know where all that leads. These fictional stories that aren't true and that bring people away from the truth. So what, what does all this mean? It means that when it comes to false teaching, we need to remember that not everyone is like Alexander the coppersmith. Do you remember Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He's the one that Paul warned Timothy about. He said that Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm and he opposed my message. And so Paul says, you got to watch out for Alexander the coppersmith, right? He's saying, you you steer clear of this guy. Uh, But Paul's saying not everybody is Alexander the coppersmith. Um, Paul issues a warning against those kinds of people and says those people have to be treated severely and opposed as they continue in their error. There are some Alexanders who teach false things, but there are also some people who might not be saying exactly the right thing who are kind of more like Apollos. You remember Apollos in Acts chapter 18? All he knew was the baptism of John, and he was this eloquent teacher who was mighty in the scriptures, but what he was saying was not quite the whole gospel but what he did know he was faithful to preach but it was just he didn't have it all down pat yet and so the bible says in acts 18 he began to speak boldly in the synagogues but when priscilla and aquila heard him this faithful christian couple they took him aside and explained to him the way of god more accurately and guess what happened 
Apollos started preaching right after that. To the point to where Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God caused the growth. Paul viewed his preaching ministry in continuity with Apollos's. In Corinth, even. So Priscilla and Aquila pulled him aside, filled in the gaps for him, and then sent him back out to minister. Can you imagine what would have happened to Apollos if they had caught him and said, you're an idiot. You know, just sit down and just we're, we're done with you. No, they held out hope that he could be corrected. And he was corrected. And then he went out and he preached. You don't want to have a cynicism right out of the gate about every person who says something that's not quite in line with the truth. You want to have a hopefulness that they can be open to correction. Just like you want people to treat you, right? You know, from time to time, we're all going to be wrong about things. And we need to be open to being corrected by the, by the scripture. And when somebody is out of accordance with the truth, we want to call them to repentance and hope that they will repent. So we need charity and graciousness in all things. And we don't want to hold people's past failures over their heads to make them feel guilty, but hold out hope for future triumphs that might occur if they're correctable by the truth. Okay, so we got to silence false teachers. We also got to rebuke false teachers in the hopes that they might be renewed under repentance. Now, we're not going to get into this today, but later in the book, Paul's going to say what happens if they're not open to being corrected. He says, you warn a factious man once, after a second warning, you put him out. That's a later sermon. But we got to silence false teachers, we got to rebuke them, and then the last thing is identifying false teachers. Look at verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. I've always viewed verse 15 as kind of a cryptic statement. It seems that way at first blush, but it's really, once you think about it, it's really not that difficult to understand. He's talking about the nature of the false teaching that they were they were facing. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. When he says all things, what I think he's talking about is God's creation. You remember in the, the false teaching we saw in Timothy, in, in the letters to Timothy, where the false teachers were saying that there are certain aspects of God, God's creation that are off limits to Christians. And Paul told Timothy he had to confront that idea. And he said in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 4 to 5, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if, if it is received with thanksgiving. So they're forbidding marriage, forbidding certain kinds of foods, these false teachers. And Paul says that they're wrong, okay, because God said marriage and food are good. He said that in the book of Genesis. So everything created by good, God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So I think that the same kind of idea is happening here in, in Titus. Everyone knows that things forbidden by false teachers, like marriage and foods, are not really forbidden to us by God. That's what Christians are supposed to know. The false teachers are forbidding these things, but that's not coming from the Word of God. So to the pure, if you really know Jesus, all things are pure. But to, that means if, if you've really been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you understand that all of creation is given to us to enjoy by God. 
But to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Those who are advancing this false teaching, that God's restricting access to marriage and foods, um, they're defiled and unbelieving, and to them nothing is pure. In other words, they're rejecting aspects of God's creation because of their false teaching. So they're forbidding marriage and foods as impure, but all those things are actually happy and wholesome things for the pure people, the Christians, to enjoy. Look at verse 16. These false teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, here's the key to identifying these false teachers. It's not always going to be immediately evident in what they're saying. Sometimes what exposes them is not their words, because some, they, know, they know Christianese, okay? Sometimes what exposes them is their deeds. And so that means that these false teachers can be sneaky. They profess to know the one true and living God, which means in some ways they look and talk like Christians. They can speak the language and dwell among us undetected. They all have the appearances of religious performances of the faithful, but a closer look reveals that they're really denying God despite their words. What's it mean? It means that sometimes actions speak louder than words. Which is why Jesus said you will know them by their fruits. You're going to know them by what they're doing. It means that sometimes what we really believe and love is revealed better by what we do than by what we say. No matter how pristine our profession of faith is, if we embrace a life of open rebellion against Jesus, that will prove that we don't really know Jesus at all. And by our deeds, we will have denied him if we ever, even if we never formally and explicitly repudiate the faith. It was very interesting in that debate that I had with that third way pastor. He said, he, he said on the, the program that there were certain dogmas that Christian, Christians had to hold to in order to be Christian. Like you had to hold to the creeds and believe that you know, Jesus died for sinners and this kind of thing. That kind of stuff you had to believe in. And hold to. He had to profess. But the Bible's teaching about sexual morality is, one of the, is not one of those essential things. As if your profession can be in defiance of your deeds. But what he completely missed is that a denial of Christ does not have to be a formal, explicit repudiation of a doctrinal statement. A person can make the very same denial by following a lifestyle that says the very same thing. A denial doesn't have to be explicit. It can be implicit by unfaithful deeds. To miss that is to miss everything that the Bible says about what it means to look for in terms of an authentic Christian faith. You know, a Christian husband, or a husband, not a Christian husband, but a husband doesn't have to announce, I want to break my marriage covenant in order to break his marriage covenant. He can break it without saying it. In fact, he can claim that he's being faithful to his marriage covenant while actually doing deeds that are, in fact, breaking his marriage covenant. It's the same thing here. 
You can say all the right things, but doing the wrong things deny the faith you profess. And what you're doing then becomes the reality of what you really are. Here, these men profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And it says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Persistence in this kind of error is damning. I wonder if there's anybody in this room making the same kind of mistake as, as false teachers make. Maybe somebody thinking that so long as you're baptized, you keep on saying you believe in Jesus, keep on coming to church, and you think that you can keep on living in open defiance to Jesus once you leave this church, and you're thinking that your faith is still intact while your life is going down the drain of immorality and unfaithfulness outside of this church. There's a warning here for every one of us. If you think that that's true, that you can live one way while professing another thing, and you're still okay because of your profession of faith, you need to know that you don't have to say the words, I'm no longer following Jesus to actually be no longer following Jesus. If you do the deeds of an apostate, you will be an apostate, whether you say so or not. That's why fidelity to God's word is so crucial for us. That's why we try to raise it up every week in this church. It's the mark of every true Christian that we hear from God and we submit to God. And when we are in error, we are correctable by the word of God. And every single one of us in this room, none of us perfect, we're every one of us a work in progress. And God's chipping away at us because he's faithful and he loves us. But the mark of the Christian is that we're submissive to this word, not in perpetual disobedience to this word. So this word is telling us that when it comes to false teachers, they have to be silenced, rebuked, and of course, they have to be identified, and you'll be able to identify them by their deeds. Just want you to know, if you're here today, and maybe you're listening to this, and you're thinking, you know, um, I was baptized as a child, kind of went to church for, you know, many years, kind of, um, you've got a profession of faith, but maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, you know, maybe I don't have the reality of faith. This is a great time for you. Because this, is, this is a word of grace to you. Because guess what? The gospel is for sinners. And that's you. And God may be revealing to you that this is the time that you need to leave kind of the false commitment that previously characterized your life. And you need to move into a real commitment. And all you got to do to enter into that is to repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay for the, your sins. God raised him up after three days so he could give you eternal life. And the only thing that you can do to receive that is to turn away from your sin, repent, and believe in the provision that God's made for you. And God can join you to this body and he can give you a new heart, and he can give you the deeds that are in keeping with repentance.
And you need to know that no matter what your background is, that invitation is open to you at any time. You can repent and believe today. And God can powerfully change your life today. So won't you do that? Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that you would confront sinners. Help them to see their need for you through this word. I pray that you would save lost people who may be in the hearing of my voice. I pray that you would call them forth powerfully by your word and save them. Help them to know Christ and all, all, of, all that that means for a true disciple. Lord, do it. Have mercy. I pray for the rest of us that you would renew us. Make us vigilant. Make us consistent. Lord, help us not to be prickly, nitpicky people about stuff. I, I just don't want a spirit of nastiness to come out of this. What I want is a spirit of large-hearted orthodoxy and commitment to the truth that has an eye towards the salvation of sinners, but also towards the integrity of your witness and work in this church. So Lord, I pray you would work and cause that to happen among us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.